Hi, I'm Amy. Hi, I'm Roisin. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome to Yonic Boom. The podcast hosted by three deadly feminist midwives exploring women's reproductive and sexual health. This episode, we are talking about... COVID-19! <laughs> <laughs> we just felt there wasn't enough podcasts out there at the moment about coronavirus. So, Hello, everyone. Hi, hi, hi. We are we coming to you at a major social the world distance. Wide web. Yeah. <laughs> um, apologies for the length of time that it's been since our uh, previous episode. Um, getting three shift workers in a room is proving more and more difficult as time goes on. Um, and lockdown doesn't seem to help matters yet. No, um, we we had a very special episode planned that we had to put on the back burner. Yeah, but, but it, it'll be are. coming. It'll be coming. Yeah. 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 It's all coming down the line. Do you think this <laughs> will change the way people do things like this? That more people will get more done because they'll be doing it uh, remotely like this? I'm hoping that we'll get more done because we're doing yeah. it like this. <laughs> I mean, it only took us, what, how many hours to set this, this thing oh. up and the help of how many of our partners? Yeah. We but chose we to are. have their help. You never know. Hashtag yeah. feminism. Um, yeah, although did you see that uh, tweet from Nicola Coughlin who, that was like, you know, in a time such as this, uh, people may feel compelled to start a podcast. Uh, <laughs> please don't give in to this urge. And then it was, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> it was like, young white males are particularly susceptible to this. <laughs> I was like, do we fall into this category? <laughs> no, we were pre-existing. We were pre-existing. There we is some pretty questionable condition. content being put out across the spectrum of everything though, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. TikTok. Yeah. I think we're kind of I think we're just a bit too old for TikTok. I don't have a TikTok account. I don't really No, neither do I. I don't really know what it is. It's kind of like Snapchat. It's gone like over my head. Yeah. I think of it as being like Vine, but I think again that just shows my age. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Vine, except with music and dancing. I think dancing seems to kind of feature heavily. Any, anyway, I say lot... people listen to this going, "Oh God, that's so awful." Scarlet for you, lads. Scarlet, yeah, yeah. I think it's a lot to do with lip syncing. That's what I feel. Yes, actually, okay. yes. Yeah, um, I don't and think video editing. Hmm. Yeah, there you Whereas have Vine, it. The Vine was just cuts, wasn't it? Whereas and this ad TikTok was brought like to you more... by. Yannick <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Podcast at gmail.com. Should any um, burgeoning <laughs> social media sites want to get in touch? <laughs> if you're looking for a bit of a plug, we could run yeah. your TikTok for you. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a go. Oh. TikTok takeover. So. Who's so, kicking us off? We get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. What is COVID-19? Okay. So, look, I know that we've all kind of reached saturation point at this at this stage. But as we said, let's throw our hat in the ring here. So I just put together a little bit of information. So what is COVID-19? Originally, it was called uh, coronavirus. And 
quite often it's still referred to as coronavirus. We're still, you know, we're, we're all kind of still calling it that too. Um, that is a common name for a group of viruses. Um, and I think there are seven coronaviruses that originated in animals, but they had this, what's called a spillover effect into humans. Um, so three of these are particularly dangerous and potentially fatal and We've probably all heard of SARS, which is severe acute respiratory symptoms um, and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and then COVID-19, but it's also known as um, SARS-CoV-2, um, called COVID-19 because it originated in 2019, um, although I think it was 2020 when I got that name. Um, so typical symptoms uh, like that we've all heard of are like respiratory distress and kind of like a buildup of kind of fiber in the lungs um but also associated with with a dry cough that cannot be soothed um a prolonged headache um and lots of people are reporting a loss of smell um and a loss of their sense of taste and then uh, some people are getting like a, like a kidney injury or like a very bad UTI with it as well. Uh, but that is thought to be related to, you know, kind of a feeling of like general malaise and not taking in enough fluid. Oh, that's um, interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that. Associated particularly, well, I've heard with, with women and potentially with pregnant women. Um, so just, I suppose, as a reminder for any pregnant women to drink plenty of water you know we'll always recommend two liters a day but I suppose just to make sure you get that that two liters in um all the time and particularly if you're feeling unwell lots of water is really important no not when I say lots I mean two to three liters I don't mean four to six just to kind of clarify that she wouldn't have the time no <laughs> um so where did it come from it said possibly to have originated in Wuhan in China. This is where the first cases were uh, reported and possibly linked to a wet food market, like a, a seafood market. But that's not 100% because one of the earliest cases had no link to that market. So we still don't know 100% really where it came from. It is known to be extremely contagious, as we all know. That's why we're all doing this social distancing and why we're kind of doing living in lockdown as such. Um, so people most at risk are those with kind of a lower immune system. So people with, um, who are on maybe, um, immune suppressant drugs, um, or those with a history of like cardiovascular disease and that kind of thing. Um, traditionally pregnant women do fall under this group. Um, but currently the thinking is that if you're pregnant and otherwise healthy, you're maybe not necessarily more at risk than the general healthy population. Um, but obviously, we haven't known about this disease for enough time to really kind of clearly state X or Y. Um, what we can see is that it doesn't discriminate against um, size. So, you know, originally people were saying people with a high BMI are more at risk, but actually, no, it's across the board people are affected um and then there is an ongoing research um about kind of a correlation between societal rates of um bcg vaccine and lower death rate of covid-19 but it's still at the correlation stage it's not causation it's really early days and there are, there needs to be more and more i think research there's research done on it um a project 
now I could be wrong about this, being done in Spain and Ireland, looking mm-hmm. into that correlation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look at it. It's a really interesting correlation to make. Um, and if it was a way to, you know, positively impact um, people who might be affected by it, I mean, sure, it's brilliant. Yeah, it would be great but, if they could, but it's yeah. just so early to tell anything, isn't it? It's Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I guess, like, along those lines, people are working towards a cure. People are working towards a vaccine. But, you know, it's it's early days. It's early days. So, yeah. So, at the moment, we're all working to flatten the curve. Hello. Um, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were about to say something else there. So, I was like, oh, I better not jump in. <laughs> We might be a There's little be rusty. A yeah, <laughs> there might be. There might be a lot of. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Maybe just continuing on in that, I've been kind of keeping an eye on what evidence is coming out now. Mm-hmm. It's like I suppose I use the term evidence very loosely because nothing as yet has been compiled into, um a kind of a presentation of concrete evidence, like examining case by case what we've learned from each case in a pregnant woman or a newborn. Um, So it's more like case studies, shall we say. But there are Mm -hmm. some things happening, I think, in um, China, in New York in particular, and now in the UK, there's a database that they're trying to encourage pregnant women who have been tested positive for COVID-19 to log on and record their symptoms and their kind of Mm. trajectory so that they can then provide actual evidence. Okay. If I could remember the name of that for the life of me, it would be great. We'll get it into the show notes. But yeah, we will get it. Um, So a couple of the things that I've been keeping an eye on particular um, is... Um, a blog and a Twitter account by Professor Jim Thornton, who is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Nottingham. So he does this with a lot of topics um, for pregnant women. So he has a blog that he puts up um, recent case studies that have come out or recent pieces of evidence um, and kind of links them all under topic headings. So I'd previously read something of his to do with home birth. Um, so he had kind of like collated a lot of the evidence around home birth when I think there was some issues going on in the UK about the narrative around home birth. So he's very, it's very much, I would read it as unbiased. Mm -hmm. He just puts the case study up. He doesn't comment on it. He doesn't Mm. say, I think this is what this is telling us. He doesn't draw any conclusions. He just says this case exists. And has been yes. reported here. So okay. in the like kind of beginning days when information was coming out about China um, and cases of pregnant women were being um, published, it was very confusing. So what he's done on his blog is create sort of a excel spreadsheet type document with running Mm -hmm. totals of globally reported cases but in particular with the information coming out of china he has added little caveats along the way to say i'm not sure if this is a repetition of the case that was already reported from 
okay. this region yeah. or that region. So it's all to be taken with a pinch of salt, basically, because mm-hmm. nothing is concrete yet. Um, but basically what that table is showing us, he's now added in any other global information. So there's a few European cases in there and um, some of the reports coming from New York have been a little bit more easy to interpret. Yeah. Um, so the New York cases are on there as well. I'm not sure about the rest of the United States. Um, but what he has on there is how many cases in pregnancy, what gestation those women were, whether they ended up being delivered, um, whether they had recovered from the virus and remained pregnant. If they had been delivered, were their newborns tested at all? And if so, did they test positive? Yeah. So as I said, there's like some... That's such a good resource. Yeah. So it's um, ripe-tomato.org is his blog. And he's Professor Jim Thornton on Twitter. And he does tweet anytime he adds new cases in. So every few days he will say three new cases from China have been added to the list or whatever. And you can go into the blog then and click the link and read what those cases were, or you can just look at the running totals. Now it's not necessarily for a lay person, mm-hmm. but okay. if you were worrying and you were looking for information, yeah. that it that's kind of like the most um frequently updated that I can find. Cool. Okay. Um so as I said, problems with duplication, also potentially problems with underreporting. Yeah. Which I think across the board, yeah, like not only for pregnancy, but so I think across the board, yeah, it's, kind it's of the certainly case, not it? to be taken as like the Bible on yeah. COVID nineteen in pregnancy for sure. And then mm. obviously translation issues from a lot of the European and Chinese studies yeah. as to whether their repetition or if it's coming across, um, like from the translation, the information is coming across accurately, mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so. As Tari was saying, the evidence is growing to say that pregnant people are no more at risk than the healthy general population, but there's not actually from those case studies. I think there might be in and around 70 to 80 case studies on that blog now. Even from that, there's not a clear cut presentation of how COVID-19 displays itself in the pregnant person. Yeah. Or its effects on the pregnancy itself or Mm -hmm. longer term effects on the baby. Yeah. And there's very limited cases, it would seem, of first and second trimester COVID-19 infections. Yeah. So whether that's just because those women maybe aren't being tested, they just... I, you know, it's very difficult to tell. Mm, very difficult. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I would say about reading that information is that in China in particular, of the women who were positive for COVID-19 in their third trimester, they had quite a high rate of preterm delivery, mm. about 47%. which is kind of like it's a staggering number when you're like oh my god if I get it and I'm in my third trimester I'm almost as likely Mm. to have to have my baby as not yeah but again very difficult to interpret because 
it would seem like those cases are being reported from quite obstetrically dominated units in China. Okay. And you wouldn't know whether their kind of modus operandi would be to just deliver the woman if they're very heavily intervention based as opposed to, you know, you you don't get that context of like this woman has tested positive. So we're just going to deliver her just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Or was that woman so sick? Or was there an, an effect on the baby that indicated delivery was necessary? So very difficult. Um, yeah. There's so little documentation, it would seem to me. Now, I haven't read every single line of every single case study of mm. whether any of those women then who were quite sick or who needed to be delivered ha- also had um, obstetric conditions. So okay. there's no yeah. like this woman who tested positive for COVID-19 was delivered at 35 weeks doesn't say anywhere she did or she didn't have preeclampsia or any other like gestational diabetes or anything so again very difficult to to say for sure and then in terms of newborns there have been babies tested in the immediate post-delivery phase but Mm. not it's really complicated not every COVID-19 positive mother's baby has been tested immediately. Mm. Yeah. So some hospitals within the same country, some within the same unit are not testing every baby that comes, that is born to a COVID-19 positive woman. So again, the statistics are so challenging to interpret. Mm. Yeah. One of the studies that I read was about four women in China who had given birth, the women themselves were COVID-19 positive and only three of those women gave consent for their baby to be tested mm. for COVID-19. Yeah. So obviously that's an added element and that's absolutely fine. People have to consent for different things, yeah. you know, and if the baby doesn't appear unwell. But it does add another layer of, well, what if or what, yeah. you know. You yeah. Know, so, yeah. And also when the figures are so small, like some of the studies I've been reading as well, it's on kind of four or five people. Yeah. And that just yeah. isn't enough. Well, that's what we talk about all the time when we talk about yeah. research. Like you need hundreds, if not thousands of people to definitively mm. say something is mm. a scientific truth or not. Mm. Yeah. Um, but if you're reading, you know, that figure you gave, the 47%, that's kind of something that would be used as a headline. Absolutely. And like taken completely out of context, it's very terrifying if you're not a person who doesn't know how to kind of, you know, interpret interpret research, research, which which the majority of people don't. You just kind of hear a percentage. You take that as fact. That's a study. Um, It's quite, you know, it's quite scary when you hear it. But then when you hear the breakdown of it, as you say, there's so many different factors that need to be considered. Yeah, Yeah. like there's no ability at the moment in the middle of a global crisis to create control groups. Like you can't do that type of research on the ground running when you are also the clinical people involved in trying to keep people alive. It's not possible to do all things for all people. So it's going to have to end up being an, a much bigger retrospective look in who knows yeah. how long about what this means for pregnant people and for their babies. Mm. Um, and so that's going to take time. So 
Like, I think if decisions are being made in people's care or lives or they're trying to make decisions to keep themselves safe, they need to just go with their most kind of, I suppose cautious is the wrong word. They need to go with the approach that feels most right to them. Yeah. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't definitively say, if I go outside to the shops as a pregnant woman, this, this, and this is going to happen to me and my baby. Yeah. So you just need to take what feels like the right approach, the most safest approach for you and your baby at the time. Obviously, we wouldn't want any pregnant woman to contract COVID-19, but it is happening. And we can Mm. only look at the information that we have from that. Mm. So as I was saying, the testing of newborns is very hit and miss. Like in a lot of the cases in China, they just presumed that babies born to COVID-19 positive mothers were also positive and treated them as such. So isolated them and that kind of thing, which Mm. is biased information, in my opinion, only because like you can't Mm. say someone is COVID-19 positive without the test, I would think. Um, But in other articles I've read and in other guidelines from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, from the Irish Physicians um, Mm -hmm. Institute are saying it's looking more and more likely that mothers who are COVID-19 positive can give their babies the virus in utero. So that's vertical transmission. People might be hearing that kind of talk if they're looking on the internet or whatever for information. So it's looking more and more likely that it's possible, but not happening in every case. Yes. Yeah, because originally there were cord bloods taken um, and they were saying that they were not finding the virus in the cord. Yeah. In the cord bloods. So... I suppose that is yeah and I mean change, even my for myself like I don't know how to interpret some of the information like a newborn who develops symptoms and tests positive at 25 hours old how do you say that wasn't or was a vertical transmission yeah. you know and then yeah. there's like arguments being made in articles and in research to say oh it was because the baby was born vaginally Mm-hmm. that it, mm-hmm. it picked up the virus in on its way yeah. out the birth canal like you there's just no mm. way of saying that for sure for sure no nothing is clear cut but unfortunately and obviously then there's no way of saying for sure for sure particularly for women in their first and second trimester a bit more for women in their third if they're not delivered as to what we may or may not see as longer term effects on newborns yeah well-being so for like yeah development and things like that Mm. um and then some of the reports of positive newborns are extremely complicated because they also happened in the main in china particularly to be premature infants so reports on their symptoms of respiratory distress can't be definitively uh linked to covid19 yeah you know and there's yeah. not enough of them being tested or uh, followed clinically to say that premature infants who are positive for COVID-19 have worse respiratory outcomes. Yeah. So and and, and there hasn't been there hasn't been enough time either. No, absolutely not. No. Um. So everything to be taken with a pinch of salt. For healthcare professionals, there is um 
a lecture series available um, on the Royal College of Physicians Ireland. I think I got that mm-hmm. right. Yeah, or um, CPI. Yes, thank you. Um, so you just need to register an account online with them and they have a series of talks all to do with COVID-19. So some of them are from immunologists, epidemiologists, pharmacists, loads of things. So if you're looking for a particular from your um, area, your area of expertise. Thank you, Tara. Um, (laughs) There's a really good series of talks on there. And just recently, um, an obstetrician and gynecologist did one of the lectures. So most of it was very specific for healthcare workers in terms of she took a case study of a woman that she had been looking after in a Dublin maternity hospital and went through it. I'm obviously not going to go through that specific case study here because that's not my business. Um, But just kind of things that are coming out from them looking at these case studies in Ireland Mm -hmm. um, Mm. are kind of discussions around atypical presentation in pregnant women. Um, So what, and I've had this discussion actually with, my consultant I don't think I've actually ever said on the podcast before that yeah I'm, I was thinking I was like it's <laughs> routine but are we gonna like talk about the little baby elephant in the room <laughs> I you're hope, not the baby elephant I hope it's not a baby elephant <laughs> <laughs> I had a like really that, weird dream last night I'm having a baby just in case that wasn't Yay! clear <laughs> I had a really weird dream last night that I had the baby, but it was like so tiny that it fit in my hand, but it wasn't preterm. <laughs> it was a boy who also appeared to be of Spanish or Italian descent and had a full <laughs> head of black hair, um, <laughs> which had already... How did your husband feel about it? Which had already been cut into a style. He had a little fringe. Um, and then I lay him down on the bed and he pooed on the bed and then I got him dressed in the pile of poo. So his clothes were covered in poo. And I was just like, I just don't know how to even deal with this. Oh my goodness, Roisin. That sounds like a really cute baby. Yeah, it was very cute. There was, I was having, uh, the pregnancy dreams are mental. Like mental. Yeah. But anyway, my consultant was also telling me when I was in for one of my antenatal appointments that they're seeing kind of atypical presentations in pregnant women. So not necessarily pregnant people turning up going, I have this dry cough, I have blah, 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 all of the symptoms that Tara already talked about. Um, They're coming in with what looks like more typical obstetric infections, I suppose. Is that the right way to phrase them? Or obstetric complications. Yeah, so like it's looking more like a kidney infection in pregnancy, as you were saying, Tara, or um, maybe an infection inside in the bag of amniotic fluid. And yeah. so they're not necessarily triggering that initial thought of this could be COVID-19. Yeah. So just for healthcare professionals to keep that in the back of their mind, that it should be kind of there, I think, in your, in your mind yeah. as a diagnosis if a woman is coming yeah. in unwell these days. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then just really like good concise information in that talk um from i don't think i said jen donnelly was the obstetrician who gives the talk if people are looking for it and she just really clearly said there's an absolute need for a multidisciplinary team approach to how we manage 
COVID-19 positive uh, pregnant people. So like it should be multiple discussions. The approach should work from all perspectives um, in terms of ongoing care and agreed need for like mode of delivery if that is something that's happening. So like if a woman comes in and she's very unwell and has a fever and it's affecting all of her other vital signs, there may be a need for her to be delivered at that time in order to stabilize her own medical condition. But it's not a definitive. This is where the challenge lies because there isn't enough information out there for them to say, we know these women do better if we deliver them early. Or we know these women do better if we leave them alone or whatever. I guess they're, yeah, just making the call based on their experience. So they really need like really good input, supported input from all of their colleagues, from anesthetics, Mm. from midwifery, from obstetrics, everything. Um, But there's, as I said, there should be no kind of preference over being delivered or not. It should be based on medical condition at the time um, and should be kind of based as per usual on gestational age, whether someone is suitable for induction and a vaginal delivery, the impact of having major surgery, particularly when someone is very unwell and then maternal and fetal condition. So obviously if you're really unwell or it's affecting your baby, then that will proceed to a decision for delivery. But women shouldn't be frightened thinking, if I get COVID-19, I'm definitely going to have to have my baby straight away. Yeah, 100%. Um, so basically, based on what we kind of do know from that evidence, it's the same thing that you're hearing kind of day in, day out, that mm. social distancing is really important and we should be doing it as much as possible. Good hand hygiene is absolutely key. You're trying to minimize your contacts as a pregnant person. What I would say is try and plan if you're at home or working from home, try and plan like your trips out of the house for every few days, kind of consolidate yeah. what you're doing. So if you need to go for groceries and pharmacy and whatever that you're doing, you're out all in one trip and then yeah. you're home for a few days. Um, I would say be very conscious of reporting symptoms to your care providers. So talking to your midwife, your GP or your obstetrician. Mm-hmm. Um, as early as you have concerns, I wouldn't necessarily be recommending a pregnant person to stay at home worrying, is this or isn't this Mm, COVID-19? I'd be linking with your care provider as early as you have concerns. Yeah. Um, And I think most of the hospitals, like if you ring the hospital general number, certainly where I work anyway, they have an actual special COVID hotline. So they have a midwife who is assigned to talk to the COVID, you know, the women who suspect that they may have COVID-19 and then help them decide under the guidance of the HSE, do they need a swab? Do they need to come in? You know, what needs to be done? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So I think it's, I think it's the same in most places, but anyway, yeah, but definitely, yeah, as you say, Roisin, don't leave it. And the other thing I would say is if you're presenting to your um, unit for another reason, so if you're due for induction, you're due for an electrocesarian section, you're going to your clinic appointment or you're going to the emergency assessment units for another reason, like you're worried about your baby's movements or you think your waters have broken or anything like that. If mm. you have any even 
niggle the that slightest. you have symptoms, you need yeah. to tell your midwife or your doctor there and then. There's yeah. no point in saying three days after the fact, oh yeah, actually I lost my sense of taste four days ago or I had yeah. a, I've had yeah. a cough on and off for the last week. Just tell yeah. us. It's so much yeah. better for us to be able to rule it out than yeah. suddenly having to deal with how many other patients have been exposed, how many staff members have been exposed, because it can just become exponential then. Yeah, absolutely it can. And I think it's really important to say, um, you touched on it there, you know, there are reasons that you will still need to come to hospital outside of your, uh, you know, your yeah. regular antenatal care. And it's so important um, there have been some kind of very sad cases in the UK where women have stayed at home with, yeah, yeah kind of reduce, I think reduced fetal movement seems to be a big one. Um, and they were obviously just so afraid to come into hospital and they left it too long. And that is really sad. Yeah. You know, it's all. And I know I'm, say- yeah, I'm saying yeah. that, like, tell us as soon as you think you have symptoms yeah. or if you're sick with COVID-19. Like, that's not to say we don't, we absolutely still want you to come in and be seen 100%. and have your appropriate care. Yeah. So yeah. don't. And that's the thing, everybody. And it's, similarly, if you have a, a sick, a person at home who's sick, if you just let people know, then they're able to take the appropriate precautions. You still get seen as normal. Exactly. Um, but it just means that more people are safe, whereas kind of withholding information um, or just being like, I won't mention it because, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's you know we're well used to dealing with people yeah. who have sick family members and who are sick, so it's it's just more important to be honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I you think won't, you won't miss out because of it. Following on from that, just to anticipate that your midwives and doctors will be doing things slightly differently to what you might be used to if you've been attending in a previous pregnancy or if you're late on yeah. in your pregnancy. So things in your units or clinics might look very different but just pay attention to any signage that's being put up or listen to people that are giving you specific instructions it's just to enable professionals to adhere really strictly to the guidelines that have been laid out for them this isn't necessarily you know one midwife or one doctor working in a particular way healthcare professionals have to now really stick to the letter of the law in terms of the guidelines they've been told apply to COVID-19. So we don't, you know, as professionals, we don't have much of a say. We have to do things this way. And it can look very restrictive, I think, in a patient experience. Yeah, That we have to do certain things a certain way. But ultimately, it's to keep you and your baby and your family and themselves and their colleagues and their families safe. And their families safe. Yeah. So your best interests are absolutely still at the core of everything that they're doing. It's just going to look a little differently than yeah. it has previously. So like the expectation of possibly seeing people in gloves and masks and aprons, it can change yeah. your experience of the care that you're getting. But yeah. it's just stuff at the end of the day, like the care mm. and the what you need is still paramount Mm. yeah absolutely um and just remember i think as well that the midwives and doctors that are looking after you have almost as much information as you this is brand new so they might not be able to answer every single question or concern they're trying really hard they have fears too they're worrying about their 
health and their family's health and how they're going to not contract coronavirus too. So just bear in mind, there's a human element going on behind that professional that you're interacting Mm. with. Just as much time and space is needed to navigate this whole new way of working for us as it is for you. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of as much as we know um evidence wise very very comprehensive there you are now thank you i mean it's not everything but that's a few kind of little resources where people can kind of keep track of things and see what um yeah and uh we'll put we'll put all the links in the show notes um unicef have good up-to-date kind of information for pregnant people on covid19 about covid19 and stuff as well so yeah there's there's a few kind of links and resources that are useful Thanks so much, Roisin. No problem. Thank you. Will I talk about gloves and masks before you talk about the baby, looking after your baby, Tara, or do you, what do you want to do? I mean, Amy, I've been waiting a couple of weeks for you to do this portion on gloves and masks. Um, I don't think we can keep the fans waiting anymore. um, Your Instagram (laughs) content about it. Um, And yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about this. Well, I wouldn't be too excited. I mean, um, I've actually (laughs) calmed down from my initial, (laughs) (laughs) my initial kind of glove induced, the misuse of glove induced uh, mania I was experiencing at the start. (laughs) Um, And now I just boycott places where they insist that you put gloves on, apart from one place, which is. I can't believe that someone made you wear (laughs) gloves. They made me wear gloves. I don't want to say where it was. I don't want to say what I was buying. Um, <laughs> but it was interesting. <laughs> but all I will say is that I I tried to challenge them. I tried to have a conversation. The woman was just like, it, then it was kind of bordering on me just being an asshole, being like, I'm not putting on gloves. So I just had to put the gloves on, but yeah. kind of spoke very loudly about it as I was doing it. Anyway, so um, obviously... There's numerous pieces of research on using gloves and why we shouldn't be doing it. Um, I think initially when it started, like, you know, I was kind of like, OK, they're doing it in shops. Um, oh, there's a couple of people outside, you know, just kind of walking down the row with gloves. And now it's just rampant. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I kind of got people to send me some stories on my own personal Instagram <laughs> at fellow underscore Dolly and um, basically some of my favourite stories were um, a woman was seen with a can of coke wearing gloves with a can of coke going into a public toilet and then coming out moments later with the can of coke and the gloves still on yeah okay delightful so think, just imagine that scenario um, people smoking with the gloves yeah. on that's very common yeah. Um, people eating deli sausages with the gloves that on. Was, yeah. So someone <laughs> eating deli sausages out of a bag in a car park with the gloves on. Yeah. People kind <laughs> of putting their hands in money. Then another people have been seen wearing gardening gloves. <laughs> oh my um, God. <laughs> people have been seen in marigold gloves. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't want to be cruel and I don't want it to seem like we're 
laughing at people because no. essentially these people are wearing gloves because they think that they're doing the right thing and they exactly. think they're doing the right thing by themselves and by other people. Um, ultimately, if you're wearing gloves, then you are not washing your hands or using alcohol gel as much as you should be. I have seen people using alcohol gel on gloves. On the gloves. On the gloves. Yeah. That's another thing that's taking off. And it's like, basically, gloves are built on the principle of you do a task with the gloves, you throw them in the bin. Yeah. That's what and we, you, wash you know, in a hospital setting, that's what we use it for. Like, you have to think if you're in a hospital and the staff are just wandering around the hospital without gloves on, these people are, it's medical staff. If they're not doing it, you shouldn't be doing it either. Mm. Um. On the HSE website, the kind of the main pieces that they said are do not wear disposable gloves instead of washing your hand. The virus gets on them in the same way it gets on your hands. Also, your hands can get contaminated when you take them off. So that's one of the main things. There's a special way that you're meant to take off gloves. And if you're taking the gloves off and as I've seen people do, putting them back on, you're creating so many more problems. The gloves are not invisible germ shields. Yeah, so like it's the surface just like the skin on your hands. So bacteria, viruses can be on them. Apparently they're worse because they're porous. So essentially it's kind of like the latex can actually absorb more of the virus. Mm, Um, So it's essentially worse. Like I think you, Tara, had a really good, um, she sent a really good picture to us recently and it was like, would you... If you touch raw chicken fillets with your gloves, like what would you do with them? You throw them in the bin. Yeah. But it's like essentially you're just going around touching a load of chicken fillets, touching something else. You're in the supermarket. You're basically just mauling everything. Yeah. With these filthy gloves. And you think Um, you're safer. You think you're safer. And also, uh, like if you're wearing hair dye gloves or sandwich gloves, (laughs) just forget it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just forget it. Um, the hospital I work in, we're asking anyone who walks in with gloves, we're asking them to immediately take them off, throw them in the bin and gel their hands. And if you say to people, when where when have you been wearing these? And they'd say, since I left my house. Like, yeah. you could have been in a bus, you could have been anywhere. You're yeah. missing all these opportunities to wash your hands or gel your hands. I, I understand, because one of my friends was saying, like, you know, people are very wary of using alcohol gel because of the chemicals and I I do understand that but it's I suppose this is it's not going to be forever yeah you know um so nobody is recommending that and there's some really good um videos and stuff that like healthcare workers are doing online where they're using like um dye or whatever so they're wearing gloves and if they touch something then the dye gets on the gloves and then they sp- like to show that it spreads just as much as if you were not wearing the gloves and not washing your hands. So I yeah. think people need yeah. to draw that link. Wearing gloves continuously and not removing them to clean your hands and just yeah. going about your normal activities is the same as just not washing your hands. So yeah. as much as hand washing is important, then not wearing gloves like that is important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. Um, um, masks, it's a little bit more, it's a bit more of a grey area. So obviously initially when people started wearing masks, the information was very much don't wear masks unless you yeah. 
are working in a hospital setting or unless you're someone who's ill. Um, the WHO is still recommending that, that those are the only two people that those are the only two groups of people who should be wearing them. And mm-hmm. um, they're not recommending them for general public use. Whereas the CDC, um, the Centre for Disease Control, is recommending that people wear them in areas where you can't maintain a two metre distance. Or which is all over America. Which is, yeah, basically all over America. And they're saying, especially in areas of high levels of community transmission, um, public transport. Um, Did you see like what happened in Florida yesterday? No. So With the nurses? No, no, with the beaches. Oh, so yeah. the governor of Florida announced some, like, at, say at five o'clock on Friday that the beaches were going to reopen on Saturday. Uh, Okay. So long as people could maintain their two meters and that you were, you know, not intermingling in groups and all this kind of thing. So on Mm -hmm. Saturday, Florida also announced that they had the highest number of cases in that day. And Mm. the the moment the beaches were reopened, there were hundreds of people on the beach playing volleyball, sunbathing, going for swims, like life as normal. No social distancing whatsoever. No masks on people, nothing. It was just like, they've reopened the beaches. Woohoo! Yeah, it was so bad. Yeah. I suppose it's, it's coming from the top down, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, this is it. The, the misinterpretation of the information. And, you know, um, I don't know, do you guys follow Dr. Joshua Woolrich? on no instagram i probably said that wrong doc no anyway he's a he's a doctor he works in the nhs um and he's great for kind of debunking he does a lot of like debunking diet culture and things like that like he's Mm. very good and he's very good at like disseminating um information like disseminating research and making it very accessible to people who are not medics you know so he he does a lot mm. of that kind of thing but anyway he shared this meme that I thought was really good and it's all about like flattening the curve he's like yeah okay yeah you're flattening the curve that doesn't mean you can stop doing all the things that you have been doing Absolutely. it's like if you jump out of a plane you're not like okay great my parachute is open it's lowered my you know um, my altitude I'll take it off now before I hit the ground like you're you don't yeah. just you're not just gonna stop what you're doing because it's just gonna drive everything back again um, but he, uh, he's a good, I'll put his, um, his name that in the sounds, uh, show notes. His, his page is good in general, but yeah, at the moment it's good because he's kind of, um, it's really hard to sift apart. through all of the kind yeah. of chatter online though it's about so hard. people wearing masks and gloves, isn't it? Because like for every, so for every hard. tweet or post that you see about someone saying, oh, it's so ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing it. Then you see somebody else posting an article saying yeah we're going to need to wear masks forevermore mm, and it's yeah. like mm, i'm so mm. afraid of this thing i don't want to get it i don't want to give it to anybody else i want it to be over as quickly as it can be and you yeah. start to be like should i be wearing a mask should i be should mm. like so it's just like all of those sources you gave amy are really good like clinical evidence based doctors <laughs> saying yeah. It should only be for these particular scenarios. And the other issue is that like 
everyone's online giving out about shortages of PPE for healthcare workers. Mm. But then they're going out and buying masks and, and gloves buying the masks. to drive their own car places. I know. I think um, the the CDC are saying um, they're not recommending surgical masks. They're re- recommending fabric masks. Yeah. And then they actually give a little kind of pattern that you can print one out yourself. Yeah. That's um, really good because there is yeah. also a huge issue with people making money off of this. Yeah, yeah which like is St. Luke's Hospital, apparently at the start, they had a lot of masks stolen from yeah. them. Yeah. And um, like people are doing really that. Awful. When the whole toilet paper thing was an issue, we had just moved into our house and we got a Tesco delivery shop before um, any of the mm. lockdown or re- restrictions were in place. And the delivery guy told us that there was a guy living locally who was ordering an de- online delivery shop of just toilet paper every two days and that his entire garage was filled with toilet paper for him to resell later. (laughs) To resell. That is so awful. I was just like, what is wrong with people? But now you see people online selling like, you know, fancy patterned cloth masks for like a hundred dollars. Yeah. You're like, it's so taking advantage of people. It's cruel. It really is. And I think, but on that, like on that note, not about taking advantage of people, but if wearing a fabric mask, you know, don't wear it for for too long. If it, like, if it makes you feel better, that's grand. Don't wear it for too long. Don't wear it, wear it if it's wet, take it off carefully. Make sure you, you have, you know, a few of them. And whether that's just, you know, as, scarf around your face or you know whatever it is I suppose the effect is twofold you're not necessarily going to stop the virus entering your body but what you might do is not touch your mouth yeah like I mean I have to say personally I'm I'm not wearing I'm not wearing a mask and I won't be wearing one unless it becomes mandatory yeah yeah like, I'm the same. you know I'm not and I'm not trying to be a rebel but I've read enough about yeah. it yeah um but, um, but people but people are wearing them People are wearing them. And, and it is a also, consideration. Yeah, and that's the thing. I I just think it's too, like, there's a couple of studies that have been done, um, as we were talking about earlier on, and one of them that I read was basically based on four people. And yeah. I was kind of like, this is too, and even, you know, it was really flawed. The other one didn't really have, um, I think it was maybe even 16. And I was kind of thinking, this isn't really enough. No. You know, yeah. Um, but I think what they do provide is some kind of level of reassurance. But also, equally, I mean, if you're wearing the mask dangling around your neck, if you're wearing it on your head, oh yeah. Uh, if you're taking it out of your pocket and putting it on, and you're not practicing proper hand hygiene, then it's essentially null and void. And even worse than null and void, it's actively dangerous. You're yeah. rubbing dirt and bacteria into your pocket, onto your hand, mm. onto your face, onto your neck, onto a countless number of surfaces. Yeah. Um, and actually, Amy, all of this um, is segueing nicely into, um, will we talk about what life is like in the hospital at the moment? Because I know there was a lot of kind of toing and froing between, I mean, we obviously here in Ireland, we all work for the, for the, the HSE, that's our mm. kind of, you know, uh, government body that we work for. Um, and between the unions and so on and so forth about, you know, PPE, were we going to have mm. enough PPE? When did we need to be wearing the PPE? Um, where I work now, 
we are advised that while it is at our own discretion, we have an allowance of four masks per day. Per, that, per you know, staff member. Per, per staff member, okay. yeah. And so for the past, uh, what day is today? Sunday? For the past eight or nine days, uh, people have been given four masks per day. So that, you know, gives you an allowance of time to... because you really need to try and just keep them on all the time. You don't want to be taking them off to drink water. Yeah. You know, because every time you touch the mask, you're risking contaminating yourself. Well, and then it's and then somebody thrown else. away then. Yeah, exactly. But so that's why they're kind of, if you wear four masks in a 13 hour shift, then that gives you, you know, a few hours at a time. So you drink water before you put it on. You drink water when you take it off. Um... And obviously you you eat when you when you take it off, like you're kind of timing it with your break time. Um, but yeah, so for us um, in work, we are we are doing that now. So um, and has there been I don't a know big what uptake you guys are, people just are doing? Um, but that's certainly what we're doing. Well, and actually, it's funny because yeah. um, uh, Louise McSharry was saying yesterday she put on glitter eyeshadow to go to work and she was like you know like why do we keep glitter for special occasions like we should just wear it all the time and I was like I was like yeah I wear glitter eyeshadow to work now because I have to wear a mask <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been like trying to make my eyes as friendly as possible and be like I'm cool I'm yeah, fun <laughs> strong eyeliner game <laughs> yeah strong eyeliner it's very hard and some glitter. <laughs> yeah. you're kind of like you're trying yeah. to kind of I know you're trying to like smize like, smizing <laughs> That's exactly, Smile. I was saying that the other day. I was like, I feel like it's like a challenge on America's Next Top Model. Be like, hi, how are you? Yeah. I'm smizing But it you. is. <laughs> and that's something I suppose women should really be aware of, that when you go into hospital, if you're on the labour ward, that the midwife looking after you will be wearing a mask and goggles. Um, mm. And actually equally in other parts of the hospital as well. And it's just you, it's it's obviously just a safety you know, it's for it's a precautionary measure, but it can. I just find you just don't realize like if someone can't see your face, your mouth, it does have an impact. Yeah, yeah. You and know, I think you're caring for someone wearing them as the person wearing them, it changes your own mm -hmm. like expressions and stuff. Because mm -hmm. like it makes your face feel different when part oh, of it yeah. is covered or you have a goggles on or whatever that you maybe don't realize parts of your face can still be seen. So yeah. you sort of nearly, <laughs> you do kind of forget to have facial expressions nearly because you feel so enclosed yourself that you're just like not thinking about I, it. I'm the other yeah. way. I'm flat out making faces of people and they can't see. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm like desperately like smiling person. and like making all these like funny faces at my colleagues and they're, they're just looking at me. All they can see is my eyes. And they're like, it's very, what? it's a very sweaty experience, isn't it? I Ugh. don't enjoy it. I do not like wearing the mask. No. I do it because it's the safest for my women and it's the safest yes. for me and it's the safest for my family. But I do not like doing it. I feel claustrophobic in it. Yes, I feel the exact same. Um, but it, it's a necessary, you know, it's a necessary yeah. thing. So And yeah. it's really hard sometimes when you're a glasses wearer, isn't it, Tara? A big time. Because your big glasses time. can get steamed up. Yeah. And it's really annoying. <laughs> well, yeah. the well, you're you're wearing goggles. Like, we're all wearing goggles otherwise. So it's just like a constant. Yeah, but they recommend glasses wearers to wear goggles over their glasses. Over them, yeah. It's so annoying. Like, yeah, because, anytime because I had otherwise to do you'd, it. You would have to, like clean your glasses 
repeatedly. Like you'd be taking your glasses off in the way that you take off your goggles. Yeah. You know? Oh god. Like you're trying Mine to like, take they take them the off makeup. from the inside and yeah. It's just a smear of kind of makeup. Oh, I forgot that you wear glasses as well, Amy. Sorry. No, I don't wear them. I don't. I that kind of corrected itself. I have a feeling it wasn't. Long story, anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, so you've just given up now? It was just a fashion statement, was it? I think I might have had another underlying issue with appears to have worked itself out. Well, all the cool kids are wearing glasses still, Amy. Oh. So I believe Tara, you're going to tell us, talk to us about taking your baby home. So, yeah, so I suppose just a little kind of bit about um, it's such an uncertain time, as we've been saying repeatedly for women, you know, um, and maybe for women who are COVID-19 positive, they're at term, they've given birth to their baby. um, And there are so many questions up in the air there and there are different guidelines in each of the units with regard skin to skin with regard whether the baby is in the room with you and I suppose each of those things has to be considered on an individual level and as to how well you are as an as a as the the woman as the person after giving birth um but I suppose while it's really challenging in the hospital at the moment we have no um visitors we have to try and I suppose think about it in a in a positive way don't we like we you know as midwives we often encourage women to reduce the number of visitors that they have in the early postnatal period in order to build their you know their baby nest or be on their baby moon I suppose you know and to try and just focus on them and their family um as much as possible but obviously it is hard. People are excited. You want to see, you know, you want to see people as well after you have a baby. Um, but there are positives to be found in it, I think. I yeah, absolutely. You, I think so. Think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's it's unnerving for people when they're thinking about things like breastfeeding support, um, you know, and, you know, who will be there um, to help them with their breastfeeding support, you know, and at the moment public health nurses are focusing on doing kind of what they call phone interventions. So they're sort of doing a checkup over the phone, basically when you, Mm. when you go home. Um, And then if you need anything, um, they will, you know, they will come and see you. Generally, the public health nurses are coming on day five, um, you know, if that's Monday to Friday to do the, the heel prick test um, and a weight of the baby as well. Um, But, really there under instruction to keep the visit under 15 minutes you know so it's not you know previously your your public health nurse might have come and she she, she might have spent he or she if they'd had enough time spent about 40 minutes with you you know but that's mm. everything is being condensed now um you know so it is it is becoming a little bit more more challenging um and I suppose people are being advised look do um if you're planning to breastfeed breastfeed that is um that's not changing um, in the case of women who are COVID-19 positive, um, they, are, they haven't yet isolated COVID-19 in breast milk. It doesn't seem to pass through. So, you know, if you're planning to breastfeed your baby and even if you're, if you're COVID-19 positive and you're not planning to breastfeed your baby and you're just caring for your newborn um, at home, you know, it's really important to just practice um, respiratory hygiene regular hand washing um you know and regular cleaning down of the surfaces 
and hopefully you have a support person there with you. Hopefully your partner um, is there with you. I know uh, personally of two women that I've cared for whose partners were COVID-19 positive around the time of the birth. Uh, one was in hospital and then one because he couldn't isolate at home with her and new baby and they had another uh, slightly older child had to go and live in, you know, one of the isolation units. Oh, it's so hard for people. It's so, it, you know, it is really hard. It is really challenging. Um, but I think, you know, in that case, look, see of your friends who is around. Can somebody help you in some way, you know? Um, yeah. And like, if you have a friend who's, you know, single, healthy and well, and they're working from home, look at maybe they can come and give you a hand. It's not the best scenario, but, you know, people need help, you know. In yeah, and you're being as safe ways. as you can. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but yeah, so what I would say is, you know, people who are th- planning to breastfeed, you know, absolutely go ahead and breastfeed. Um, and then they're also saying kind of... Um, if it's coming up to the time where you were thinking about weaning your baby off breast milk, maybe consider just carrying on breastfeeding if you're comfortable to do that for another for another little while, just to sort of have that um, element there, both of kind of bonding. And then we know that there are many antibodies of all sorts of types passed through um, the, the breast milk. Um, and then in terms of breastfeeding support, um, Two that I know for sure, two lactation consultants that I know for sure that are doing like um, Skype or FaceTime appointments um, are Nicola O'Byrne, friend of the show. How are you? Um, and Latch.ie um, Kiva. So if they have appointments available, they will link in with you. If they don't, they're they're both really good for recommending an alternative um you know, person. They they will link you in with somebody who will be able to help you. So um you're not alone, as we've always said. And then, you know, there are the Facebook groups where you can seek out support. But as always, with any of these things, you have to take some of the support on there with a pinch of salt. It's not those people may not be qualified or have received any degree of training in breastfeeding support. Um, and then shout out also to Sandy Dula, who you can find on Instagram, who is also providing um doula support um in uh, pregnancy and postnatal um so yeah well done to her she's doing some some really cool so the coffee more online yeah, stuff. The, yeah. the virtual coffee mornings for new moms yeah That's it's so great. nice it it's looks great so, it looks so nice and the feedback that she's getting is just really heartwarming because you can just imagine like people at home isolated maybe their yeah. partner isn't working from home with a new baby and just how yeah. endless your day would be. Yeah, yeah well, I think like is. we're all finding it really, really hard. Yeah. Just yeah. doing yeah. next to nothing all of the time. So it must be so difficult. Yeah. To bring so, a yeah, newborn well done, baby um, home to that. Well done, Sandy Dula. I met her at a conference and uh, it was delightful. That was great. I was delighted. She seems, for, her online persona seems very, very nice. Her IRL persona is also very nice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's that's all. So that's just all on that, that, I think that like people are being really creative and trying really hard to provide uh, as good care in new ways, like doing online consultations and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, 
I think the same, like there's huge change and differences in the hospital setup that people mm. should anticipate when they go in. So like hospitals have been divided into kind of zones or COVID positive areas and COVID free areas as much as possible. So um, there, there just like should be, I suppose, an awareness for people going in that they're going to be asked to socially distance as much as possible in the hospital. Yeah. um, That they might be in different locations than they would normally expect say for clinics or that kind of thing or their clinic visit times might change um they'll see obviously more staff members using ppe there'll be a huge emphasis on um hand hygiene and then obviously something that we have to touch on because i think it's been a pretty hot topic on kind of facebook forums and chat groups and stuff is visiting restrictions so like there's lots of difference amongst different units as to Mm -hmm. what's being done and not done just to kind of point people to the aims uh, aims ireland i'm sure we've mentioned them many times before um facebook page or website has kind of like a table of what each unit of the 19 units in ireland is currently doing with restrictions okay Um, and there was a lot of uproar i think recently about mullingar banning all Mm. partners they've from changed, any they've changed that now but they've recently lifted that mm. okay. um, and just for people to know like national and international guidelines obviously advise that women should have their partners with them particularly in the labor process yeah. and I'm in birth but that's also that interaction is also subject to all of the restrictions and guidelines that we now have in place for COVID-19 it's not yeah. some sort of bubble as much as we would love it to be where COVID-19 can't reach because it's such a special life experience and so your midwives and doctors have to be as cautious in that interaction as in any other interaction so any restrictions that are put in place are not being put in place to limit or infringe upon your human rights to have that experience with your partner there it's being taken as a specific consideration if let's say your partner is COVID-19 positive or you as family have had contact with COVID-19 positive people or let's say for example if there was an the unlikely scenario in a hospital where there was a severe shortage of PPE that hospital those healthcare professionals are going to have to do something to create as safe an environment as possible for you Mm. and for them now I think the Mullingar ban was probably a little preemptive. I don't yeah. think they had massive concerns about a cluster or anything like that. They just, it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, possibly. I don't know the ins and outs of it. Well, but I think at least they've wound it back. As well. They're a general hospital yeah. as well. I think that yeah. that was probably, yeah, an the element main, of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it has been wound back. And yeah. so I think just keep an eye on your particular unit's website or if they're updating you by text message or whatever so that you know going in you're not going to go in there expecting a normal experience and be disappointed unfortunately the same applies then for restrictions if you have a sick baby in Mm. NICU there are restrictions and that's as much to protect you and your baby as it is to protect the highly skilled people that we need to work there to keep looking after your babies yeah. Um. So I think 
typically from the that table that Ames have provided, most mothers are being allowed to visit their babies in NICU for 15 minutes a day. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, girls. Um, but it may be up for some discussion in terms of breastfeeding and stuff like that. Yeah, I think um, it's, I think the, the 15 minutes isn't across the board. And I think uh, what is important to clarify as well that became unclear through one of those posts on Facebook a couple of weeks ago is it's not automatically just the person who gave birth to the baby that is allowed to visit. Okay, well, what that's the good. hospitals are, are stating is it is a nominated parent of that child and that one nominated parent can go in and visit. It's, it is a, an absolutely heartbreaking scenario um, that none of us have ever hoped would come to fruition. Like nobody ever wanted this for the NICU. Um, but it's where we're at now. And I suppose as time goes on, we have to see, you know, what, what, can, what can move. But I know that there was hot debate on one of those posts a couple of weeks ago because there was sort of a misinterpretation of, oh, only the mother can go in. And mm. it was this whole, yeah, you know, scenario of, well, why is it only the mother, you know, and so on and so forth. But I think in every, in every unit is a nominated person that can go yeah. and visit um, that baby. You just but I suppose to, it's just, you it's just, just that there's clarify, fewer bodies. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, obviously, you know, it shouldn't have to be said, but we all know that 15 minutes a day with your baby is not enough. We're no. not in any way, shape or form trying to say that it is, but it's what has to be done at the moment. At the moment. To exactly. protect everybody in that scenario. Like it would be so much worse if we started seeing clusters in our mm. neonatal ICUs and tiny babies yeah. becoming really unwell because yeah. we also don't have many cases of that. For yeah. us to draw learning from in how to approach their care. And then yeah. suddenly if we also doubling up on that have huge staff absences or staff becoming really unwell, there's less and less expert people to look after your precious baby. Yeah, so you're running absolutely. into multifactorial issues. Yeah. It's not going to last forever, I hope. No. <laughs> I, I no. but I have to say of anything that's going on at the moment I do find it it's so absolutely hard I find heartbreaking. It's, it's so sad and I think there are hospitals are really trying their best to come up with innovative ways mm. for people to be able to see yeah. their babies yeah um yeah you know like kind of by using iPads and kind of increasing you know other ways of communication and yeah. people are the staff are very aware and it would be much easier to be able to allow parents to come in and care for their babies and see their babies that you know that makes for yeah. everybody's happier but it's just not feasible yeah no I, I think know. if anybody obviously is listening to this and has any concerns or questions about any of what we've talked about mm -hmm. they can get in touch and hopefully we can kind of clarify yeah. maybe why certain things have happened i think there can end up being a lot of confusion with people yeah. about why they were restricted to certain things and they can feel very put out yeah, and absolutely. sometimes just talking to someone and getting the perspective needed yeah. can ease that like upset a little bit absolutely um yeah and i suppose just to touch on that roisin from from what you're saying um um so when you're talking about 
uh, partners coming in for the birth, like we really mean they're coming in in established labor when you're kind of going into that single room. So if you think about coping in early labor, obviously, as always, we encourage people to stay home as long as possible if they can in their, you know, if they have a spontaneous onset to their labor, you cope at home. Um, I heard these awful stories. I don't think they were from here in Ireland about people being told to just stay in labor in their car until they felt that they had to push and then to come in. Oh my God. Like, you know, like to park outside the hospital and like, which is just, yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, I suppose just a reminder to people to kind of, um, you know, do all your antenatal prep, think about how you're going to cope in your labor and manage at home um, and do that for for as long as, uh, you know, as long as you are happily coping. Like, obviously, we don't want people severely in distress at home. Um, but then you really hope that when you do come in to the hospital that you are in established labor that you will be going to a single room and then that your partner can come right up with you obviously if there's going to be a little bit of a time in between you know sometimes women need to come in they just need to establish a little bit more maybe they're mobilizing for a couple of hours unfortunately partners can't come into the hospital for that you know time period um but just you know to to try and to try and do all those all those things um and also like you know, as much as we might be wearing a mask, like your midwife will help you cope in your labor as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, you know, we are there to hold your hand and rub your back and help you in and out of the shower and do all those things and get you through that time until your partner can come in or equally, you know, I've cared for for a good few women um, in the last couple of weeks whose partners couldn't come in, you know, that they were maybe at yeah. home caring for other small children. Um, and that's okay because we're, you know, we're there with you. And I do think it's important to remember you're not just left alone. Yeah. You, you, and that's a, you a know, very good point. it's hard. You're the vulnerable person having your baby, yeah. but to remember that you can speak up and ask for us to do yeah. things that you would normally ask your partner to do. So yeah. like, I believe as much as possible in the maternity units, they've tried to staff with extra maternity care assistants so there are extra supports around for the antenatal and the postnatal period to help you. Um, so whether that's to help you to run a bath to get into or to help you afterwards with changing your baby's nappy or getting your baby on the breast, like speak up and ask us, ask us to rub your back, ask us, you know, my partner was yeah. going to do X for me in labor. Do you think that's something that you could do for me now? I feel like I really need it. We will mm. so gladly help you. Yeah. I might draw the line of clitoral stimulation. Tara, (laughs) it's your job. (laughs) It's like, not something I've really witnessed. Potentially something to think of at home. Yeah. (laughs) And also make sure um, that you have, if for whatever reason you're going to be by yourself, make sure that you have a a phone charger. Absolutely. Yes. Like, please. It's they disappear. so important. They do. Yeah. You need to br- like have a fully charged phone. Um, most people have smartphones. Like most people have WhatsApp. You can do video calls. Yeah. You know, you can see. So you can kind of seeing someone's face can make such a difference. Yeah. Um, and nobody would be opposed to you FaceTiming. No. In your labor at all. If your partner wasn't there for whatever reason. No. Yeah. So that's something else to think of. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to uh, bring the tone down there. In the <laughs> That's okay, Tara. Just a little bit of blue humor on a Sunday. <laughs> um, I suppose we just need to talk a little bit then about our colleagues and kind of yeah. advice for them and how it's affecting um, pregnant healthcare workers, pregnant people mm-hmm. on the front line, mm-hmm. what midwives yeah. and doctors can be doing a little bit. Yeah, Amy, were you going to tell us about the donning and doffing thing? Yeah, I suppose. Well, I'll just talk briefly about it because um, I suppose one of the big things, like obviously PPE and there's essentially a worldwide shortage. There's also been a lot of scams that are coming to light. Um, I suppose anyone will kind of use an excuse to make money, even in a time of crisis. Um, So some countries have basically spent millions on fake PPE or like not even fake PPE, just non-existent PPE. Um, So that's your personal protective equipment. Obviously, very important to keep healthcare workers safe and to keep them, you know, to keep them working, to be able to kind of keep them healthy and well. Um, I think in Ireland, we're okay like a lot of companies and um, some of my friends have actually they have access to 3d printers so the hospital i work in they've donated frames and um, oh, that's for so the good so that's nice really yeah. cool. so shout out to tom and owen thank you so much so Aww. they made all of the little um the frames that our, our glasses go on and then there's been lots of places up and down the country that have been making um just the goggles and donating them to hospitals and other places that use PPE for their jobs have donated it as well. So like, I mean, it's such a big community effort and it's really essential because we, we physically wouldn't have enough. Mm. Um, in the hospital, like I think most places, most colleagues that I've spoken to feel that they've been given adequate, adequate training. Um, it's obviously really important when you're doing it, it's kind of the main damage is going to be done when you're taking your PPE off. So yeah. always kind of have somebody there watching you and telling you, take this off, wash your hands, do this. You know, so it's really important. Um, if you have symptoms, I think a lot of the time we're so used to going in. If you don't really feel great, you kind mm. of just force yourself in because you're like, if I'm not there. Yeah. You know. I, you're thinking of your colleagues, but this is definitely a situation where if you don't feel well, you really shouldn't be going into work no. and you really yeah. need to be contacting occupational health. It's yeah. very challenging, you know? I think, because culturally, like people working in the medical field are usually very apprehensive to mm. miss work due to illness. Yeah, you feel duty bound. Yeah, like you feel so yeah. guilty that you're yeah. leaving your colleagues working with less people, that you won't be believed that it's yeah. a legitimate illness, but this is not one to be messed around with. I think no. particularly because regardless of our flattening of the curve beginning here in Ireland, healthcare mm-hmm. workers still remain at about a quarter of all transmissions. Cases. Yeah. And nearly 10% of that quarter are nurses and midwives. The INMO just put out a really interesting post about that. It's actually frightening. Yeah. It's really frightening. Yeah. Um, Um, And I suppose to link from that, we put out a call on our Insta page about wondering how, if we had any colleagues 
um, any pregnant colleagues um, out there and what their experiences (laughs) have been um, so far. Now, I did include on that story, you know, I wanted to hear from people who worked in other you know, what are considered frontline roles. So whether people worked in retail or, um, you know, delivery or uh, bus drivers. Anyway, we had some contact from some midwives and some doctors. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so we we don't know about the other um, kind of roles that people have, I guess. Um, But I suppose what we are hearing, gosh, unfortunately, it it wasn't, uh, it wasn't particularly... It wasn't particularly inspiring now. Yeah. Um, And I suppose what people were finding was that particularly people who are in their third trimester. So like Roisin, you were saying, like we have so little evidence about what is happening in the first and the second trimester. Um, But I suppose the RCOG are advising that people in their third trimester shouldn't be working in roles where they are, you know, frontline public facing. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily founded in all of the evidence that we have about COVID-19 specifically, but it is coupled with what we know happens when pregnant women become really unwell in, in the their third, third trimester, trimester anyway. Yes. If you become yeah. really unwell, the likelihood likelihood is that you're going to have to have your baby early. And it's just this whole cascade of things then that you want to avoid. Yeah. So yeah, they're absolutely. saying you need to avoid that as much as possible. So don't be public facing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Unless you absolutely, absolutely have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I suppose there's kind of a little bit of a discord where the guidelines being used here... Um, well, yeah, the Irish kind of thing. The Irish obstetricians and gynecologists, I never remember what order that goes in their <laughs> thing, basically said that the RCOG were not basing that on COVID-19 related yeah. research. So they mm. weren't going to advise the same thing. So mm. it's led to a lot of grey areas, I think, for frontline workers who are pregnant yeah, and what to do. Definitely. So like some workplaces have just said, absolutely, you're pregnant. You're not public facing and that's it. We're going to keep you out of harm's way. And then some, yeah. So some people have been redeployed to contact tracing, let's say, or working on a helpline or Mm. some other administrative based duties. Some people have been given COVID related sick leave, I'm hearing, because Mm -hmm. they can't be given those roles. And then other people have been offered roles in as low risk an area as they can possibly be given. So, you know, I was saying they were dividing hospitals into COVID wards and non-COVID wards or safe zones and high risk zones Mm -hmm. or whatever. So they're trying to say pregnant frontline workers should be working in those low risk zones if they have to work public facing or patient facing at all. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like I said, when I was talking about the research, there's really nobody that has the exact definitive answer of what is the right thing to do. So you're going to have to look at the information that's out there, take everything with a pinch of salt, both for and against you working as a pregnant frontline worker and come to your own decision. Like I've had to come to my own decision. I was due to go back to work after taking some leave for other personal issues for four weeks. And it made more sense to me to just not have that worry and stress and anxiety of the yeah. not knowing how I could be affected. It made yeah. more sense for me to take early maternity leave. 
okay. then yeah. Yeah. put myself. But that's in the context of my own personal situation. You know, yeah. I've had a lot of things yeah. going on yeah. outside of COVID-19 in my own personal life that kind of framed that decision for me. Yeah. So Which some people are like, if I'm not at, if I'm at the same risk as anybody else, I'm happy to go in and work yeah. in a low risk area by yeah. all means. The, yeah. for particularly for nurses and midwives, the union would have been calling on um, the HSE and I, the Irish Institute mm. of OBS and Gynae or whatever they call themselves um, to... <laughs> I think we've given seven variations. I know, I'm so... I just, <laughs> I'm like... It's when it's like an acronym or whatever those things are called, it never stays straight in my head. I, I think um, they, they, they come under the CPI. They do, they yes. do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the INMO were really pushing for them to adopt the UK advice that okay. all pregnant frontline workers from 28 weeks should not be in patient care or public facing mm. roles. Mm. But that's okay. uh, like, it's easy to write that in a guideline. Do you know? Um, you can't say that and also not address the fact that there aren't administrative roles for everybody or that all nurses and midwives and doctors are suitable to just automatically move into um, administrative roles. So there's multiple challenges. What I would say is I would recommend, much like I did in my own situation, is weigh up the balances, talk to your senior colleagues, your managers, your talk to other colleagues who are maybe going through the same thing and come to a decision of what you can do. There is pregnancy related sick leave you can take for a month. Yeah. You know, there are options available to you there. I'm sure you wouldn't be hard pushed to find a GP or a a consultant obstetrician who would sign you off if you were particularly yeah. anxious and particularly if you have underlying health conditions and you're a pregnant frontline worker, I would seriously consider looking into those and removing Definitely. yourself from a high 100%. risk area. Yeah. Um, I suppose that just kind of lastly brings us to like cases in healthcare workers and yeah. um, the unfortunate news that there are healthcare workers who are dying from COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and in particular, um, some pregnant women have also died. Mm. Um, and that kind of all uh, crossed over itself when a pregnant nurse passed away in the UK last week. It's um, a really sad story. Such a sad story. She's only 28. Yeah. So yeah. she's very young and she had no underlying health conditions, which is kind of the thing you're hearing all the time. Mm. in the mainstream media is this affects older people and people who have other conditions but it is happening and she's left behind a little girl um her name is mary agua agiapong yeah yeah and her little baby's called mary as well i know isn't that so lovely yeah really yeah but such as it's like so sad to have to have that name in tribute to yeah you know her mom yeah. Um, and Mary was, um, was she a nurse in London? Yeah, she was working in Luton and Dunstable in Hospital. In Luton, yeah. Yeah. 
And I suppose her death does bring up a lot of kind of layers of issues that are going on for pregnant people with COVID-19, mm. for healthcare workers with COVID-19. And then obviously um, the ongoing kind of conversation around black women's health and how black yeah. women experience these things disproportionately as yes. in pregnancy, complications, healthcare and kind of life-threatening illness. Yeah. So we just thought we'd kind of touch on that really briefly um, because it's Black Maternal Health Week. Mm-hmm. So it's just something to think about. I know that in the day before they um, did the cesarean section to deliver her baby, her doctors thought she was getting better and then mm. she deteriorated rapidly and passed away the next day. Um, so it just kind of brought to my mind how maybe like black women's health can be viewed a little bit differently um, Mm -hmm. and their experiences particularly in obstetrics can be much much different Um, so it's just something to kind of bear in the back of our minds always I think but particularly this week yeah definitely Um, and then another another um, young mom who passed away in the UK as well we'll mention her Selena Shaw was her name and um, yeah also a woman of colour um she was diabetic but she was otherwise you know she was a totally healthy mom this is her her third baby that she was expecting she passed away eight days after after that baby was born um so yeah two two very sad cases and um, it's really sad when you, it's, it's it's kind of unimaginable sadness really isn't it it is it is yeah mm. it's kind of i mean it's the worst of anything that you can imagine really isn't it like um and to mention, we've mentioned Candice uh, or Candice uh, Braffitt on the show before. Um, and she's a well-known campaigner for the rights of um, black women um, in healthcare, um, and particularly in, in birth. Um, and she's well worth following again. If you don't already follow her um, on Instagram, she shares a lot of, um, of really interesting um, information. So, yeah worth worth a follow um but um yeah we don't like to end on a on i know a, i feel like on a, sad on a sad note, note but, yeah, but i so suppose hard. um you know we can't do this show and not acknowledge uh those women um exactly yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right to and i think um given yeah. that i'm not working at the moment just i'd like to give a shout out to the two of you for working as hard as you are through all of this because it's not easy it's scary and so much has changed about the way you're having to work um mm. and people will be lost without is um going to work just and us just me just and Tara. just amy and tara now <laughs> yeah. all of the people working in the front line and all of the people yeah. working really hard in their personal lives to try and make this you know go away as fast as it can like it's not easy and thank you and to everyone everyone who's keeping the country afloat like I'm eternally grateful to be able to go down and buy my daily packet of family size Cheetos yeah and eat them (laughs) lockdown would not be survivable without them I think I've eaten about eight bags of marshmallows in the last three weeks <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, lockdown is challenging, but you know, I think if we can see that those numbers, if we're flattening that curve, we just need to, we just need to persevere. Like I think, yeah, it absolutely. is, it is so, so hard. It's hard for everyone on many, many levels. Um, everyone's experiencing things differently. 
Some people are flat out baking banana bread, making Dalgona coffees. <laughs> Sourdough. Hashtag starter. <laughs> Look, whatever um, gets you through, right? It, absolutely. Whatever gets you through. Um, and I think that that's... What's the other know, thing we, people we are doing? Remember. Banana bread, sourdough. And there's some, there's a third thing. What the is coffees, it? The Dalgona coffees, the whipped coffee. No, you, well, you're ahead of the curve on that. I think. I don't we, think so. I think our algorithms are very different. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is all plants. I'm uh, currently just trying to propagate multiple house plants and mine is all vegetable um, garden. House transformations because I'm trying to look, figure out painting my house. Oh, so yeah. mine is all just people doing like fancy paint jobs in their own houses. Mine is low how to eat low carb, which is the exact opposite of like, <laughs> my, my life mantra. Are you just watching ASMR like meat eating videos? <laughs> <laughs> it's like here's a load of stuff that you can substitute bread with yeah. that will taste like shit. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. um I suppose in our wrapping up of the show, thank you to our uh, producers and our partners who have helped us set ourselves up with um our gear as we are I speak for myself I am tech phobic um and um <laughs> uh, you can find us on Instagram at boom yonic you can email us yonic boom podcast at gmail.com and anything else to add no hopefully we will talk no. to you again soon yeah, yeah stay safe everyone stay safe please get in touch and hopefully bye. we won't be too long before we do the next one bye we're all waving I love that bye while we are medical professionals and we love answering your questions this pod should never be used in place of a real life consultation with a midwife or doctor if you have a serious concern about your health or medical emergency please go to your gp or to a hospital